this before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have re- their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you are to be not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in, on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also forgiven, have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. And wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for these words from our Savior, our Master, our Lord, instructing us on how we are to live set apart, different distinct lives by your grace that is working within us. Father, we pray that we will be lights in this world, that we will be a stark contrast from self-righteous religion, and we will be genuine followers of you that exalt you with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. Father, help us. We ask you now as we look at your word, give clarity to our thoughts. Make sure, Lord, that we understand your word accurately. And if there is anything said that is not honoring to you or does not line up with your scriptures, may all the people forget. May your name be exalted. May your word be proclaimed. We trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have some keys. I'm fairly sure it's a Honda van. So afterwards, they're up here if you need those. Is this not working? Huh? 
turn it on. Okay, I'll try turning it on. Yes, it's not on. Now it's on, right? Yes, it's working. You can turn the one that makes me sound like a Donald Duck off. There are, I, I occasionally get to hear some of my sermons and I think to myself, it is only by the grace of the Lord that y'all continue to come back. <laughs> it's my squeaky voice definitely has to get on your nerves occasionally. I think that's why attendance is not always consistent. You just need a break every once in a while. Okay. Love you guys. Thank you for your, your kindness. Today we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus used this sermon to instruct his disciples on the contrast between a true abiding relationship with God and a fake hypocritical religion of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes. From the beginning to the end of this sermon, Jesus exposes the man-pleasing, self-exalting religion of their day. At the same time, he gives a beautiful picture of the abiding relationship that disciples should have with their Heavenly Father. Some of the themes that are kind of woven together throughout this sermon are done in order to explain an abiding relationship with God. And these themes include... Heart motives, what's going on in your heart really matters for those that are in right relationship with God. Total dependence upon our Heavenly Father, that is, we're constantly seeking Him and depending upon Him and looking to Him. Righteousness, genuine righteousness, as we serve our Master and our King and our Lord and our Father. And a genuine relationship with God is described in this sermon. People who are seeking to glorify God, not themselves. It is a dramatic contrast from the religion of Jesus' day and even the false religions that we see out in the world. This kind of relationship with God is counter to anything this world has to offer. And as mentioned in Sunday school today, if you can find anything better, I would be, it's not going to happen. It's beautiful. It's amazing. There is nothing out there that compares to the glory of the gospel. And all people say, all other religions, including the fake Christian ones, the ones with the title Christian but that aren't genuine, are about exalting man. But true, genuine, biblical Christianity is all about exalting God. And the Lord Jesus who came into the world to save sinners like us. All other religions promote superficial, external, man-pleasing performances. Actors. But genuine biblical Christianity is all about relationship with God. A right relationship with our Heavenly Father. At the end of the sermon, look over there, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus warns the disciples of this superficial religion 
and exposes that there is a genuine relationship with God and how it looks. And he contrasts the superficial religion. Look at 721 to 23, and he gives an important warning. He states in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow, what verses, right? He's bringing it to conclusion, and he's showing, look, this false religion, this false self-righteous religion can do all kinds of deeds, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's whether you have a right relationship with me, whether you know me, and whether he knows us. He says, I never knew you. Religious works or deeds without relationship are what? Dead. Useless. Fake. There's a difference between genuine followers of Christ and superficial followers of Christ. The biggest difference is relationship. We are known by God and we commune with Him. We have an abiding relationship with Him. And it's, it happens in the heart. So are we walking with Him, talking with Him, depending upon Him, enjoying our Heavenly Father? Are we praying and pursuing our Lord? Are we abiding and enjoying Him? Are we enjoying what really matters? Him. These are the questions this sermon, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, should provoke in our hearts. We should be constantly evaluating, do I have this kind of relationship? A relationship that depends upon and enjoys the Father. Undoubtedly, in a group this large, there are fake Christians here. People who have hidden what is really going on inside their hearts. Their Christianity is more about what others perceive of them than truly pleasing and enjoying the Heavenly Father. I want to encourage any of you who are in this group, throw off the mask. Humble yourself. Cry out to God to save you and to establish this genuine relationship with Him. You need the Savior, and His name is Jesus. For us who are truly committed to Christ, we all are still very prone to self-righteous religion, even after conversion. You know that, right? We can go about the motions, just doing what we do, coming to church, praying, reading our Bibles even at times, just to check it off. We can find ourselves living for others and for their approval, and it, it it slides in, doesn't it? This is a very catastrophic place to be for the believer. We miss out on the blessings of obeying our Father with joy. We too need to be, we too need to humble ourselves again. 
We need to continue to pursue this abiding relationship. We need to all fall on our faces and cry out, God, I need you. I need you today. I need you every hour. This hymn kept going through my head after my wife. I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. I need thee. A walk with God that gives praise to him and honor to him and praise and pursues righteousness with our whole hearts and a heart that is totally dependent on God the Father, trusting him. That's what we're seeing in this sermon. This beautiful picture of a relationship with God and what it looks like. Today we learn a submissive, dependent heart is the requirement for a Christ's disciples. A submissive, dependent heart is the requirement for Christ's disciples. I know I'm crawling through this prayer, but I pray that you're being encouraged in this relationship with God. Just to review, we are in the section of the sermon where Jesus corrects the people-pleasing religion, the hypocrisy, in verses 1 to 18. Remember, he started there in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if you're doing religion so people will say, Wow, you're religious. You've missed the whole point. It's not about what other people think of you. It's not about the audience of many. It's the audience of one. Our reward is Him and with Him. And we long and do and pursue righteousness, not for what other people think, but to honor and please our Heavenly Father. Jesus gives His disciples three corrections for this hypocritical self-righteous religion of their day. We saw in verses 2 to 4, a secret God-glorifying giving. Giving as to honor God, not to boast in yourself. A secret, God-glorifying prayer life. That is, we're pursuing God and seeking Him on an intimate, relational basis, not for other people to notice us. Or not even to try to somehow earn favor with God. If we pray so many times, or we do this so many times, that somehow God's going to love us because of that. God doesn't love us because of how many times we pray a day. Do you understand that? We don't earn favor with God because how often we pray. We pray because He loves us already. <laughs> we pursue Him because we know He loves us. And it's a beautiful message that we want to go to all the time. We want to go to the Father. And finally, we'll see a secret God-glorying fasting. We have slowed down to cover the Lord's model prayer in the midst of this in verses 9 to 15. It's an example of a God-glorifying prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. We will finish this up today and move on to the secret God-glorifying fasting. Ultimately, this whole sermon, though, was an exhortation to evaluate the motives of our heart as we seek to follow Christ in righteousness. A word is repeated throughout this section, through this whole section, the word secret. This word is critical in defining a genuine walk with God. Secret. Secret. It's closely related to another word that's repeated throughout this sermon. Heart. Heart. The heart is something that's what? 
hidden. It's not the heart that's actually beating blood. It's the soul of man. It's our existence. It's who we are. It's who we think on. And it's the place where we worship God with our hearts, right? And it's a secret thing. It's something that's going on that nobody can see. All of y'all clean up very nicely. But that doesn't tell us anything about the secret heart. I don't know what's going on in your minds right now. I have no idea. All of you can smile at me. Smile. There it is. That means nothing. I have no idea. But God knows. God knows. God knows what's going on deep inside your soul right now. Every single one in the room, he knows what's happening. He knows whether he is Lord or you're Lord. He knows whether you are praying to him and seeking him or you are seeking to exalt yourself. And you're here for self-righteous reasons. He knows those things. It's the secret motives of our heart. That's what he's addressing. It isn't about what other people think of us. It's all about our hearts and our intimate relationship with God. What are we praying? What are the motives of our hearts? What are the priorities of our hearts? He's going to develop this over and over and over throughout the sermon. And it should be a call for all of us to evaluate our hearts. What are the motives of our hearts? The secret motives of our heart. Not what others think. But what the Father wants. Jesus called for God-glorifying prayers and petitions for the necessities of life for the followers. Notice, he gave the petition. We saw this to depend upon the Lord for our daily bread. That's what he asks. That's what he tells them to ask for. I need my daily bread. Father, I come to you. I need my daily bread. That is, I just need the basics. I just need what I need to eat and live and survive. Just my basics. That's what I need. Go to, go to the Lord with that. Why? Because it acknowledges that God is sovereign and in control of all of our daily needs. Everything, right? And so it's really about humbly going to him in secret. Second, we must depend upon the Lord for forgiveness and reconciliation with him. Implying what? We sin. We sin regularly. Everybody knows it, right? And so what do we do as believers, as followers, as disciples of Christ? We're constantly, humbly going to him and saying, I need forgiveness because I've sinned against you, Father. Confessing our sins. At the same time with a humble heart, a heart that doesn't elevate ourselves over others and think that somehow they can owe me a debt, but I can't go to God and ask for forgiveness. See, the important thing for us to understand is a heart that's humble, a heart that's reconciled with people is also probably going to seek God. A humble heart. Today we look at the last personal petition of the believer. Jesus gave, notice, we must depend upon the Lord for protection from evil. We must, pretend, we must depend upon the Lord for protection from evil. In Matthew 6.13 it says, Deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation. Or it says specifically, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there are tons and tons of books even written on some of these concepts here. 
And I want us to dig in a little bit and just think on this a little bit. Is there a Bible passage that comes to mind that seems to contradict this passage? Maybe there's one that comes to mind. James, maybe? James 1.13? The disciples were told to pray to the Father, do not lead us into temptation. But isn't that impossible? Because God doesn't tempt anyone based on James, right? Why would they say and petition God, please do not lead us into temptation? When James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So why would we pray, lead us not into temptation if God never tempts anybody? Well, I think it's important that we understand that God can be sovereign over something, but yet not do the act. He does not tempt people, but he is still sovereign all of all events, isn't he? Second, the disciples were told to pray to the Father, do not lead us into temptation, but isn't God sovereign over all trials and temptation? So wouldn't this be praying against God's sovereign will for everyone? In other words, think about this, lead us not into temptation, but the fact is, is that everybody's going to be tempted. And it's all part of God's what? Sovereign plan. That is his plan. Did you know that? That in God's sovereign plan, everybody in the room is going to have times of trial and temptation? Did you know that? God's sovereign over that. It happened to Job, didn't it? So what in the world? Well, here's the problem. We come to places like this and we try to get all these verses and put them together when we, and we miss the, just the point of the passage. <laughs> it's about the heart of the prayer. It's, the part, it's about the heart of the disciple. 1 Peter 1, 6 states, if this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it's necessary in God's providence... You have been distressed by various trials. Same word. Same root word. As we've said before in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to be careful not to try and formulate a full theology on a particular subject from one verse in the Bible. It's very important. Jesus is not trying to fully explain the difficult tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty here. He's not trying to give us all the details. He's not trying to say, okay, let me explain how these two things fit together. He's saying, look at your heart, (laughs) and this is how you should be approaching the Father. You should be approaching Him with a humble heart, recognizing, I'm prone to sin, and I need your help. Protect me. That's His point. Deliver me. He's just addressing what the heartfelt prayers of the disciple looks like. This is so important for us to note the context of verses. Remember, secret heart, secret prayer, relationship with God. A systematic approach to specific topics is both profitable and dangerous. Do you understand that? You need to think through these things, but realize don't, don't fail to, to, to do what the verse says. Call out to God, I need help. Please protect me. I'm prone to sin. 
And again, we know that God is sovereign. And he loves for his children to cry out to him and participate in his sovereign plan to protect them. We often try to reconcile verses and concepts that aren't meant to be reconciled. We just need to leave them there. The point and context of this passage is completely focused on the heart of the praying disciple. What they should be focused on as they approach God. What they should be thinking as they approach God. What the praying disciple desires and petitions should be. That's what matters. I'm with Chrysostom and MacArthur on this. Jesus was not speaking of logic or theology, but a heart desire and inclination that cause a believer to want to avoid danger and trouble sin creates. It's the natural thing for us. All of us that are focused on God, this is our natural expression to our God, isn't it? The redeemed heart, what? Hates sin. How many of you hate sin? All of us, right? So what do we do? Father, protect me. I don't want to sin. Protect me from falling into these traps. The disciple of Christ wants to escape at any or he wants to escape any possibility of falling into sin. We hate sin, don't we? But believers, let me ask you a question. Have you found yourself as your life has gone along I fall. <laughs> I blow it. I blow it a lot. Anybody? Well, whatever you do, don't say, well, at least I'm getting better. I'm having victory. Look at me. Because if you do, you're falling right back into the big trap, the lie. What you should do if you look back and say, man, why am I not doing that sin anymore? You need to fall on your knees and say, thank you. Thank you, Father. You have done work in me. Oh, please keep going because I know I'm still prone to it. The hymn writer's words just keep ringing out of my head. Prone to wonder, prone to stray, prone to leave the God I love. This is what he's saying. Pray, God, protect me. Okay, you want one that's nice and short and concise? Pray that. We should deliver me. We love the Father, and we know He is the only way for us to avoid sin. We know by His grace and our participation, we can mortify sin. We can kill sin. And avoid wickedness. By the Spirit working in us, we are able to mortify sin. This prayer also implies Jesus is fully aware that the disciples were vulnerable to fall into sin. Think about this for a second. Jesus is saying, you need to pray for this. What's that mean? He knows that they are prone to what? Sin. Gets it. He knows the heart of all men, doesn't he? He knew his followers were prone to sin and prone to wonder. He expected his disciples to know their vulnerability. And he called on them to know you are vulnerable. Again, I am reminded over the years, I was thinking about this this week. How, looking back over the 25, 27 years of walking with the Lord, 
how many people I have seen that I thought were on fire for God and now you can't find them with radar. Have abandoned the faith. There's a good tension that comes within the soul of a believer. And that tension drives us where? To our knees. God, I need you. My perseverance is ultimately based upon you and you alone. Help me. My right standing is based on Christ. My perseverance and sanctification is based on you and need you every hour. Interestingly enough, Jesus exhorts the disciples to pray something very similar later on in, the, in Matthew. Look with me over at Matthew chapter 26. He almost says the same words. In Matthew chapter 6, or 26 rather, Jesus is just about to face his crucifixion. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, right? In Matthew chapter 26, he's already had the time in the upper room and he is getting ready and he goes out to pray and he takes the disciples with him, all but Judas, who was headed that way. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, we read, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Well, that's okay. No, no big deal, right? And he took with him Peter and the son, two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, not yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watching with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's this? You know, if they would have been, if at that point, oh, what, what did he tell me to pray? What was he that he told me? Oh, and he tells it again here. Hmm. I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable right now. I need God. But what happens? We all know what happens. The disciples ultimately fail to heed Jesus' exhortation. They fall asleep again, and then he wakes them up, and what happens? He's arrested. Then the disciples, as a whole, fled. Peter himself then denied Christ three times. He didn't obey what the Lord told him to do, did he? He didn't see his vulnerability. He didn't see. He said, though all will follow, will fall away, I, I will stay with you. Beloved, do you understand that we must understand our weakness? We must see our sin for what it is. And we must see how sinful we still truly are. 
This was definitely a low point in the disciples' life, wasn't it? But listen, realize we all would respond that same way if we were without God's grace. Every one of you, all of us would do the same thing. Now, I know you say, well, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and I sure look a lot more holy than that guy over there. You're right there at the same spot when you say that. Oh, listen to me, mature Christian. Listen closely. All too often, mature Christians take pride in their maturity. Oh, if those baby Christians would just grow up. We're doing the same thing. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Me, please. The key to praying this, this prayer is how Jesus exhorted the disciples to pray. Recognizing our weakness. The flesh is weak. But the Spirit is willing. You are prone to sin. We all, listen, we all need to wake up to our sinfulness. Now, at this point, some of you say, oh no, he's on sin again. Brutal! This guy has got to be the most brutal pastor in the planet. That's two sermons in a row that it wasn't the balm, it was the knife. Oh, I want you to understand something, beloved. If you read this sermon from beginning to end, there isn't a lot of balm in this sermon. <laughs> he's, he's confronting the heart. But he's not confronting the heart so that you will walk out of here guilt-ridden. He's confronting the heart so that you will run to your Father who loves you. He's calling us continuously throughout the Word and reminded us just how much I need Him. And you need Him. We need Him, don't we? Another implication of this prayer is a recognition of our inability to deliver ourselves. It doesn't say, clean up. <laughs> Avoid that temptation. You can pull yourself out of this jam. <laughs> he doesn't say it, does he? He says, look up. Your hope is outside of you. Deliverance comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from you. Oh, you just don't know how much this applies to all our counseling problems, isn't it? Oh, I'll tell you, as a counselor, one of the most difficult parts of counseling is, is that people want five ways to fix their problem. They want me to give you five steps to avoid that sin. You ready? Pray. Pray, 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 and pray. And then go do it. Seek God. He's the one that delivers. He's the one that protects. 
takes faith. Yeah. That's our life, isn't it? Trusting Him. God is the one that's sovereign, and He's the one that can keep us out of harm's way. This includes temptations to sin. This prayer also suggests we will face opposition from the evil one and his wicked followers. It says evil, and I believe it's not speaking of the evil one only. It's the evil in general, and it includes everything. Evil within, evil from outside, evil from the world, evil from Satan. It's evil from all directions. You must understand, beloved, that the evil one does want you, and the world that he is over, the people he's over, want you too. Like James states, we must, in James 4, 7, submit yourself, or your, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Boy, it's the same stuff. James took just after his half-brother, Jesus. Half-brother being that Jesus was what? God and man. James was only man. Our defense against evil is God, beloved, not ourselves. So seek the Father's help. Don't fight the battle by yourself. We must seek our sinful propensities. And we must realize evil is crouching to destroy us from outside and from within us. Every one of us, we must humbly seek deliverance continually. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, what is the starting point for all biblical prayer? You ready? Here it is. Listen closely. Starting point for all biblical prayer. Humility. Humility. Saying, I can't do it. I need you. And how often do we say this? You say, Mike, you sound like a broken record. Good, because that's what I preach to my heart every day. All the time. This stuff sounds sweet to me. It's reminding me what I need to do. I need to do it over and over. I need God. You do too. Reminds me of 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by the, your brethren who are in the world. We need God to protect us. We need our Father to protect us. He's a good Father. You know that, right? How many of you fathers, if you saw your child just about to get hurt, you'd say, hmm, go for it. Especially if the child looks at their father and says, help, Dad. Nah, you, you can get on. You can make it by yourself. That makes no sense. 
We have a kind and loving heavenly Father that wants us to humbly seek Him always. Now, do fathers allow in their providence, in their in their position rather, their position of authority, allow children to sometimes fall down and hurt themselves because they can see the pride? And they say, oh, you think you can do this by yourself? Let me see. Ooh, okay, well, just let this little thing happen in your life so that you can look the right way. Yeah, sometimes that does. That's discipline. We don't do it evilly, though. The idea is to cause them to look to us. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest things for me to learn as a, a parent is finding some of those places where i got to just kind of let them, uh-oh, here they go. They're gonna, I'm going to let you... I'm going to let you step on that, do that, so that you'll look up. Not really look to me, but look to God in those other times. I wish it was always like the toddlers, right? The toddlers, we just tell them to do everything. When you're, when you're crossing the street, you hold my hand. Do you understand, Samuel? You hold my hand. Don't let go of the hand. We don't go... When he pulls away, we don't say, okay, go run in the parking lot. We don't do that because we know, we know what? You're, you need safety. What a good father we have that he says, pray to me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Praying the Lord's prayer, this model prayer requires a humble heart, doesn't it? Requires seeking God's glory, not our own. It's seeking His will, not our will. God's kingdom, not ours. And seeking our daily bread and knowing that He alone can provide forgiveness. All of these things. This is prayer. This is seeking God. And finally, we see we seek protection and deliverance from sin. We seek Him with humble hearts. And when we finish this prayer, we're often called to worship within our souls. And we will cry out, to you be glory and honor and power and dominion. I can see where the doxology fits in and out, and I'm not going to debate that. Let's just put it this way. God's worthy of all of our worship, isn't he? And he answers prayer. And we honor him. And we exalt him. Your prayers... Do your prayers resemble this? Do you seek God's glory, not your own? Do you petition God for provisions for your needs? Or do you always try to do it on your own? This is what genuine prayer looks like, beloved. So Jesus corrected the self-righteous giving practices. Then he corrected the self-righteous prayers of the Pharisees and the pagans. And next we see... He corrected the self-righteous fasting practices of his day. Look at verse 16. A secret God-glorifying fasting. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I think out of all the practices and disciplines that he mentions in this section, 
This one is the most secret. <laughs> because it's the one where we say no to food, and the temptation will naturally be, look at me. Look how holy I am. That's exactly what happened. The pattern is the same of the other three. Just like giving and praying, fasting is assumed by Jesus. Fasting can be and was both partial and full fasting. Going without food for a period of time, usually only having water. It wasn't, by the way, it wasn't a diet. I know some of you, what, what? There was a big thing that went on for a while that everybody was on a diet that involved fasting. And it was a Christian diet that was fasting. I think this misses the whole point of this passage. Can you imagine? I'm fasting so I can look better. So other people see me? That still misses the whole point of the fasting. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Be careful with what you eat. But don't turn it into a religious experience. This is about what? Depending upon the Lord. It's not about exalting ourselves. It's about saying no and sacrificing some eating time and some food for fellowship time with God. Spending time with Him. This is a discipline all believers can participate in. It can be a time of rich fellowship with God. But it's important to note it isn't commanded. I don't believe it is commanded. And throughout the whole, all of Scripture, Old Testament, you could argue that one. However, it is suggested and assumed as a part of the believer's life. However, notice Jesus boldly confronted the hypocritical fasting. Notice, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. What does he mean by this? Again, he's confronting the actors. He's confronting the actors again. He basically says, look, when you fast, when you go without food, wash your face. Make sure nobody knows you're doing it. <laughs> Do it in secret. Pursue the Lord. The hypocrite's motives, however, are shown in this passage. For fasting was for the honor of men. Look, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Listen closely, folks. Maybe, I'm not going to ask you, maybe some of you haven't fasted before and you're wondering, should I fast? Well, hey, he assumes that it's a part of our lives. It's something to consider. I think you ought to consider it. If you're going to fellowship with the Lord, maybe it can be an opportunity here for you. But the most important point of this passage is not about whether you fast or not. It's about what you do when you fast. It's what's going on in your heart. And you know this applies to just about anything. Listen closely. Any kind of act that we do for the Lord. I was confronted by this this week. In my own heart, beloved, sometimes I get a little weary. Anybody else get weary? <laughs> you're working and you're serving and you're doing everything you can. And occasionally somebody will come up to you and say, how you doing? And you go, I'm just worn out. I'm tired. Why did I say that? 
That's a good question to ask your heart, isn't it? Why did I just say, I'm tired? Is it because I'm literally tired, I'm exhausted, I'm at that point, and I'm asking for the person to pray, or am I saying it to kind of somehow show off that I'm a hard worker for the kingdom? Do you hear me? This is the heart motives that we have to evaluate in our soul. Do we look at ourselves and say, hey, look at me, I'm a hard worker. That's just as sinful as fasting with a gloomy face. It's the same process. Again, why do we do what we do? It's the question that's been asked for years and centuries. Why do we do what we do? What is the motive behind what we do? I admit that we live in a culture and in a day where it's all about people's approval. And we even... Unfortunately, at times, train this into our kids. We teach our kids that our approval is based on what? Them doing something for us. Why do you think, if you look back through the Bible, all the times when parents showed favoritism? Anybody see that in the Bible? All the way through it, right? Favoritism. What's it often based on? Well, this child, this child that I had did more for me. <laughs> they were easy. I got along with them. So therefore, oh, I love them. Joseph, right? Isaac, what's the point? I think we, our hearts are prone to this gloomy face syndrome. We're all prone to do these things to be noticed. But it's about our hearts. <laughs> it's about our Father. And serving Him and fellowshipping with Him. It's not about what other people think of us. The hypocritical one who is fasting gets what they are after, but nothing more. What do they get? If somebody, you, you understand, somebody can serve in a church and do it for the motive and notice of other people, and they can serve their whole life, and people can say, man, you are the greatest. You can get awards. Way to go! I even think, to a degree, Awana teaches some of this. I'm just being honest. To a degree. You memorized 15 verses? Way to go! Here's an award. I think we need to be very careful. We need to evaluate hearts. I'm not saying don't ever give a reward. I'm, never, I'm not saying that. Do you understand? But it reminds me of graduation. Oh, I hated graduation at Master Seminary. It was the worst thing in the planet. You know Why? Because they read out the GPAs. I think they stopped it just recently. Praise the Lord. Every year we petition, please stop reading those GPAs. And it never failed. It was always with 3.85 magna summa cum laude. The person walks in and everybody, ooh. 
Hold your applause to the end. Hold your applause to the end. Ooh. 3.98. Brother John. And everybody goes, whoa. Yeah! He's the winner! What are we talking about? Beloved, it does not matter what I think of you at all. It doesn't matter what anybody sitting next to you thinks. I think this is one of the problems with marriages. We are obsessed with what our, parent, our, our spouse thinks of us. We are consumed with fear over, am I going to approve, are they going to approve us, of us or not? Instead of heartfelt service to God, to honor Him. I know I probably cleaned out half the room in this sermon. But again, I'm preaching to my own heart. Jesus confronted this hypocritical fasting of the Pharisees and calls for a different life. I'm not going to get to this last one, but Jesus talks about, yeah, let's get there and we'll close with this. This is good. Go to Luke chapter 18. What does Jesus want? This is what Jesus wants. This is what he desires of his followers. Right here. You want to see? He illustrates it perfectly with a parable. A parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Luke 18, verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. And he, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Mm -mm. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God... I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, and even like that, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Oh, 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 oh. Is this not exactly what Jesus was confronting in Matthew chapter 6? It's the same exact stuff. However, notice the difference of the tax collector who God had gotten a hold of his heart. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. We are here to serve the living God. The one who sent his son into the world to die for sinners like me and you. I pray that all of us will have this kind of heart. The tax collector's heart. A heart broken over our sin fully recognizing that our hope is in God and not in ourself. And then trusting in this, Father, to forgive us 
and direct us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Confronted again with our need of you. Thankful again that you're there with your arms wide open. Ready to hear our prayers. Father, we need you. We ask for your protection, deliverance from evil. Oh, God, please help us to not take value in ourselves and think that we are somehow more righteous than others. Help us to see our vulnerability and to cry out to you. Help us, Lord, to depend upon you and you alone. Be merciful to us, the sinners. Please forgive us and deliver us and direct us and sanctify us that we will show the light of the world to this world. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you that our hope is in him and him alone. Help us, Lord, all of us, help us, all of us, to trust you. We love you. We commit our day to you. We pray this in Christ's holy and perfect name.